Welcome to The Pethel Project, a podcast that explores the library of scripture, person of Jesus, and how they apply to our lives. My name is Joel, and I'll be your host as we go through a series of audio reflections. My prayer is that you would understand and meet the person of Jesus in a real and tangible way. The human condition has two universal axes of connection. The first, vertical, represents our longing for connection with a higher power, homo cultus. The second, horizontal, represents our desire for social interaction and community, homo socius. Where these two universalities meet is what we can properly call religion, the synthesizing of the sacred and the political. Aristotle famously penned the words, man is by nature a political animal. If this is true, we must look past religion itself and into the power dynamics at play. This episode will survey political developments within Judaism, Christianity, and Islam between the 1st and 9th centuries. Using Zetterholm's hermeneutical analysis of religion through the lens of social movements and rational choice theory, or RCT, we'll see the political aspirations from the people of the book, often resemble one another, displaying different communities' persistence in adapting to varying degrees of political confinement and liberty, therefore pointing to the universality of religion. Zetterholm describes a social movement as, quote, non-routine concerted actions in and through which people try to change their lives and to create situations within which they may ideally and or materially live in comfort, close quote. Within the period in focus, all three faiths display non-routine attempts to live in comfort. This varies from group to group in a range of time and is determined by political power dynamics. What is common throughout all three faith, all three cases is the notion of theocracy the direct rule of the one God in the society that obeys his law. What we find when cross-referencing RCT, social movements, and theocratic government, is religion itself. The ancient Israelites, the ancestors of the Jews, organized politically under a theocratic governing system. Josephus most likely coined the phrase in against Apion. In 37 BCE, the Roman authorities appointed King Herod, a local loyalist king who ruled in Palestine till 4 BCE. Herod was generally despised by the local Jewish community, believing that his authority was illegitimate since he did not descend from the house of David. The Jews enjoyed some degree of religious independence and freedom under Roman rule, despite the fact that the Judean rulers were Quote, appointed by Rome and were expected to bear allegiance to Rome. Close quote. In 6 CE, after the rule of Herod, Rome began to plan a plan of direct rule over Judea as a Roman province headed by Roman governors. It is no surprise that relations between the Jews and the Roman authorities deteriorated thereafter. Emperor Caligula, intentionally provoking the Jewish community demanded that a statue of himself be set up in in the Jerusalem temple. 
Soon after, in 66 CE, full war broke out, resulting in the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. After the destruction of the temple, the Jewish community felt a significant degree of disorientation. Previously, the temple had been the center of religious and cultural life, and in the wake of its absence, an alternative needed to arise. After the Bar Kulpa revolt in 132 CE, as Hayes writes, quote, a small and peripheral group with some connection to pre-70 scribes and Pharisees preserved and developed a Torah-centered Judaism, close quote. Their work would result in the major writings of the Palestinian rabbinic movement, including a collection of legal teachings and disputes known as the Mishnah. As the Christian community grew in Palestine and throughout the world, the Jews were subjected to increasingly severe forms of persecution. Initially mild, such as the fictus judicis, a tax imposed on the Jews who formerly paid a temple tax, the persecution seemed bearable. However, as the Christian presence grew, it also acquired legislative power and political influence, which regrettably manifested in more severe anti-Semitic policy. Influenced by Christian lobby groups, discriminatory legislation known as the Code of Justinian in 527 CE would negatively affect European Jews for centuries. Under the Code of Justinian, Jews were given no real legal protection. Synagogues were reallocated to be used as churches, and there are reported reports of forced baptism. Fraun Robert notes that the Jewish community subsequently ignored the Christian rise to power and opted to devote themselves to quote, the interpretation of the biblical laws and the development of the legal trajectory from Moses to Hillel and beyond, close quote. In the 7th and early 8th centuries, Persia, North Africa, as well as much of the Mediterranean Spain came under rule of Muslim Arabs. Initially, the Jewish exilarch in Babylonia were recognized by the new Muslim authorities and granted representation in the caliph's court. This freedom, toleration, judicial autonomy, and protection was granted as long as the Jewish community recognized the supremacy of the caliph. Jews and other religious minorities were labeled as dimni, dependent peoples, and had to conform to the Pact of Umar in 800 CE, a treaty which solidified the Jews' second-class citizenship, but guaranteed protected legal status. However, by the end of the 7th century, the Dimni and the Pact of Umar became discriminatory. Within a diverse cultural and religious milieu, the early centuries of the first millennium saw Christianity grow from a ragtag fringe group of tax collectors, fishermen, and the like, to the dominant religion of Rome. Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The axiom could not be truer. In the, in the coming years, persecution would become increasingly more systematized. As Clark writes, when the emperor Decius came to power, in the civil wars of the mid-3rd century, he ordered all inhabitants of the empire to sacrifice to the gods. 
not just by attending a festival, but by making libations and tasting the meat of the sacrificial victims. And he wanted a certificate to prove it. When Diocletian became emperor in 284 CE, he suppressed revolts and notoriously persecuted Christians. In February of 303 CE, Diocletian ordered the destruction of churches and biblical texts throughout the Roman Empire. He also banned meetings for worship in prison clergy and more. In the eyes of Rome, Christians, ex Christ Christians' expectation of a coming kingdom was a threat to Roman hegemony. To truly understand the significance of the Christian martyrs, one must first grasp the Christian notion of death. In Matthew's gospel account, Jesus is recorded as saying, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Many Christians truly believe this, believed this and were willing to pay with their life. What is remarkable that even during a time of immense persecution, the church is remembered as offering prayers for their Roman rulers and peace in the empire. During the centuries prior to Constantine's conversion, the role of the bishop had steadily increased in influence and prestige. However, after Constantine, the accumulation of power was dramatic. It's important to keep in mind at the time of Constantine, there was a robust kaleidoscope of Christianities jockeying for the title of orthodoxy. In many ways, Christianity appropriated the, appropriated the cultural milieu of both Greeks and Romans. The Christian practice of the 4th century was not invented by Constantine, but rather he submitted to the traditions already in place. It is true that he may have been selective in what he accepted, as noted by Rousseau, but he certainly did not reinvent the religion. His conversion did, however, end Christian persecution and invite Christian communities into the formal sphere of Roman politics. Constantine's decree that bishops could decide civil cases was an enormous amplification of the church's political voice. As Christianity grew in state-sanctioned political power, doctrinal issues became a regular part of internal political discourse. Justinian's promotion to emperor in 527 CE marked a new era of the church's role in the public sphere. In 528 CE, Justinian started the Corpus Juris Civilis, an organized collection of authoritative legal opinion. In 545 CE, the legal outcomes of four great church councils was added to the corpus and marked the beginning of canon law. The Christian shift from a persecuted minority to writing legal code in just a few short centuries cannot be overemphasized. Law, largely influenced by the church, was enforced by state-sanctioned violence, even torture. The shift was dramatic and left many within the faith community struggling to find a sense of identity in an increasingly politically charged environment. Notions of the eschaton and apocalyptic expectation remained rife in portions of the community. 
Since the early days of Christianity's rise to power, a response within the community was the monastic movement. Confusion regarding the church's role in a carnal, politically charged world left many longing for the lucid silence of solitude. Islam. When considering a theocratic governing system, Islam represents the clearest example. As Stromser writes, quote, spiritual and political leadership are to a great extent identical. Among the Abrahamic religions, only for the Islamic community does the union of theological and political power seem to represent the natural or ideal state of affairs, close quote. By the time of Muhammad's death in 632 CE, he had seen the success of Islam take root in Arabia. The endeavor, however, was not without turmoil. His message was originally rejected in his hometown of Mecca, and subsequently, in 622 CE, Muhammad was forced out of the city. His emigration, known as the Hijra, marks year zero in the Islamic calendar. As Islam spread beyond the Arabian peoples, it faced the challenge of systematizing practical practice in an ethnically and religiously heter heterogeneous environment. The response was for Islamic courts to issue fatwas, legal rulings. It is important to remember that Muhammad was not a legal jurist, nor is it likely that a formal legal system developed in his lifetime or in the few years that followed. Contrary to popular, mostly Western opinion, Sharia is much more nuanced and complex than surface-level jurisprudence permits. At its core, there are two main components of Sharia, ibadah, ritual actions, and mu'amlat, social transactions. The former relates to notions of worship, while the latter deals with more social components of everyday life. Since Muhammad was not a legal jurist, and the Qur'an provides no clear method of jurisprudence, his teaching were simply regarded as sunnas, or the way. It was therefore up to later legal scholars to establish Muhammad's teaching, forming the foundation of authoritative law. Muhammad ibn al-Sharif, who lived in 767 to 820 CE, is one such figure. Al-Sharif is has been attributed with the formation of the legal principles known as Usal al-Faq, Four Roots of Jurisprudence. The legal school is still active today and taught at Al-Asar University in Cairo, Egypt, founded in 970 CE. According to Hughes, the school represents the oldest and most venerable institution of learning and jurisprudence in the Sunni world. The caliph, meaning to replace, simply put, was the leader of the ummah, or community. After Muhammad's death in 632 CE, a succession crisis emerged. The leading figure was Muhammad's companion, friend, and father-in-law, Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr's leadership, uh, the Islamic empire, under Abu Bakr's leadership, the Islamic Empire expanded into Syria and formally declared jihad or holy war on the Byzantine Empire. 
Umar, the second caliph, conquered Damascus in 635 CE, Jerusalem in 637 CE, and Alexandria in 642 CE. Uthma succeeded Umar and continued Islamic expansion. In the west, he captured Cyprus in 649 CE, and in the east, pushed the empire's borders all the way to Persia in 653 CE. Subsequently, Uthman was assassinated in 656 CE, and the Islamic community entered the Sunni Shiite schism. Following the schism, the first Sunni caliph is known as the Umayyad dynasty. The dynasty began to conquer in Spain in 711 CE and pushed all the way to France, where it was defeated at the Battle of Tours in 732 CE. This marked the peak of Islamic expansion into the West, into Western Christendom, and is treated uh, is a testament to Islam's political influence and strength. So in conclusion, as we have seen, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, in the broadest sense, all share political affiliation. The three faiths hold to a notion of theocratic government, though in vastly different ways. In the case of Judaism and Islam, theocratic notions are more lucid, as represented by the study of Torah in the case of Rabbinic Judaism, or the expansion of Sharia in the case of Islam. Regarding Christianity, their theocratic notions are uniquely eschatological. Despite the difference in ruling timelines, all three are, rep are presented as social movements making rational choices dictated by local circumstances. Power was exploited when given and communities adapted while in positions of weakness. What we can conclude is that humans are by nature political animals and willing to strive to see their core convictions realized. Historically, this has taken the form of legal ruling and the formation of religious jurisprudence. What the, what the listener can take away for today is that we are by nature homo socius and will stop at nothing to see the well-being of our, of our societies and communities manifest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pethwell Project. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating, or even better, share this with one of your friends. For more information, check out our website at pethwellproject.com or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Pethwell Project.